Good to be here together. It's a, it's a gift of God, isn't it, to come together on a Sunday morning and hear from God's Word and encourage one another. If you've got a Bible there, have an open in front of you. Now, if you don't have a, have a Bible um, in front of you here, why don't you take this time just for a second to jump up and grab a Bible from the foyer. You're very welcome to do that. Um, if you want to go and grab one of those, uh, that'll be great. We're reading through, just for those who don't uh, unaware if you come for the first time today and just visiting. Um, we're reading through Nehemiah uh, just because 1 Timothy tells us to devote ourselves to the public reading of Scripture. So from time to time, a few times a year, we're just going to read through a book. And so you never know, in God's good timing, it might help us with 1 Timothy, but uh, we'll see what happens. So just reading through Nehemiah. So if you've got a Bible there, have it open in front of you. It's really important that you've got to follow along and make sure what I'm saying is what's in the Bible there. And, um, and then uh, obviously you can use a phone if you want, if your Bible's on your phone or an iPad or anything like that. There's a, uh, there's a political movement, and I'm not going to give away which one because I'm not that silly. Um, there's a political movement that uh, uses the phrase... Sorry, we're full when it comes to describing their policy on immigration. Sorry, we're full. Interesting, isn't it? How about that? They've made up T-shirts, stickers, hats with that little slogan over the top of it. Inward looking. To say that's inward, well, that would be an understatement, wouldn't it? Uh, Now, imagine if the church was like that. Imagine if the kingdom of God was like that. Sorry, we're full. Imagine if the church was members only, like some exclusive club. I once um, tried to get into a Qantas club at the airport, and uh, a friend said to me, just walk in. Just walk in with confidence and it'll be fine. (laughs) Didn't work. Excuse me, sir. Are you a member? No. (laughs) Sir, she said, this place is not for you. Or something like that anyway. Didn't get in. Imagine if God's church was like that. Imagine if the kingdom of God was like that. Well, the good news is, of course, it's not, is it? It's not like that. That is not God's heart. Let's hear again these words of this glorious gospel that we read about last week. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. I'm going to pray for us in a moment as we open God's word. Uh, just so you know too, I'm, I'm, today I'm, I'm using the, the, the most recent um, uh, NIV. So that's the one, I think it's a 2011. The one we use for the church Bibles is the 1984. So it might be, it's the obviously... Very little differences, but one of the good things the new NIV does, it takes out some of the gender-specific language that's unnecessary. So in chapter 2, verses 1 to uh, 7, we, we read, for example, in, um, in verse 5, the man, uh, for there is one God, one mediator between God and men. The Greek word is actually encompassing male and female, and so it's a little bit unhelpful. So I'm going to use, and, and I'm not going to have it on the screen, but um, if you're following the 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 church bibles you'll notice a slight difference it's just because sometimes the greek word is male and female but in 84 that's what they did back then they just put men meaning male and female which is a bit weird these days probably a bit weird back then too anyway let's pray 
Father, we, um, we thank you for your word. We thank you, uh, God, that you speak to us. And Lord, most of all today, we thank you for your son, who we'll read in a moment, who is that mediator who gave himself as a ransom for all. Uh, Lord, we, um, we pray that you'd help me to speak clearly. You'd help us all to listen. And um, we thank you again for church this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, there's also an outline too in your, um, in your bulletins. You can follow that along. And uh, as per usual, there's a little tear-off slip there if you want to ask a question. We haven't had a question the question box for a while. Um, maybe you're saving it up for the next couple of weeks if you're looking at the next two passages. Anyway, um, but uh, if, uh, if you'd like to ask a question and we'll have a question answer time next week, then write a question there, put it in the box, and we'll get into it. So what we're coming to now in two, chapter 2, verse 1, is... A, a new, I guess the main section of the letter, you could call it the main teaching section, and it runs from 2 verse 1 to 3 verse 13. Paul is now seeking to instruct Timothy in terms of how he wants God's church or God's household at Ephesus reshaped with a renewed focus on the gospel and godly living in contrast to the legalism and the ungodliness demonstrated in those false teachers, uh, the ones we talked a bit about last week and the week before. So 2 verse 1 gives us some pretty straightforward clues that this is a new section. Uh, You see the word then, uh, some translations have therefore, it's the same word, uh, means the same thing. Um, The I urge, that's often a clue in Paul's letters that he's going to start something new. A bit of a giveaway. And also the phrase, first of all. Although I think first of all probably means here of, it may mean of first importance. You might remember last week, Paul introduced this metaphor of shipwreck. Remember from that, and you can see it in the last um, couple of verses of chapter one. It's something to avoid it clearly. There's a great danger if we wander from the truth of the gospel that we might shipwreck our faith. And at the end of chapter 1, we get two examples of people who have done that, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have shipwrecked their faith by wandering away from the truth of the gospel. And so in this long section here, in 2 verse 1 to 3 verse 13, uh, keeping the metaphor going, the, the ship needs to be steered away from the rocks into the safe, deeper water. The behaviour of the crew needs to be dealt with. And given that two officers on board the ship have been dismissed, well, guidance is needed in the appointment of new leaders to sail the ship. That's what's happening. So this is what we see, and I hope this is sort of helpful for you. Um, In uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, the church must be steered into the deep waters of the gospel, in 2, 8 to 15, if you're following your Bible there, the crew must be encouraged in behaviour pleasing to the Lord. And in the 3, 1 to 13, well, new leaders need to be appointed who will faithfully steer the ship. So this morning, what we're going to do, we're going to look at those verses of chapter 2, 1 to 7. And you can see in your outline there, so you can see where, where we're heading in a, in a brief way, a general way. And what we'll find is that the church, God's church, is to be in stark contrast to that narrow legalism that we looked at these false teachers who would who would be inward looking uh, the sorry we're full attitude paul saying that the the heart of god the contrast of god's churches is is enormous uh, to this sorry we're full elitism superior knowledge uh, superior obedience to the law uh, that false teaching we looked at last week 
the, Paul's, the, the, the church of God is in stark contrast to that. So Paul wants the, the church to launch out once again into the wider world in order to share the glorious gospel with its message for all people. That's where we're heading. Long introduction. Uh, let's have a look. At, let's get into it. And you see, like any good mission, what, is it, what does a good mission start with? Of course, it starts with prayer, doesn't it? That's where a good mission starts. So let's start with 2 verse 1. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Prayer for all is the top priority in God's church for the advance of the gospel. I'll say that again. Prayer for all is the top priority in God's church for the advance of the gospel. Now let's ask a couple questions from these two, verse, these two verses. Uh, first, how should the church pray? Well, it's a bit hard to distinguish exactly the dif- what the difference is between uh, petitions, prayers and intercession. But in the end, I think the variety of terms simply highlights the importance of the task. I think that's what Paul's doing. This is such an important task, I'm going to use a few different words to describe almost the same thing. Perhaps what's going on here, I think, you know, sometimes preachers give slightly dodgy illustrations. This might be one of them, but just go with me for a while. Um, I think this is what's happening. See, you know when a a little child is asking for a toy, maybe they're asking for an action man figure. Remember that from a few weeks ago? Who wouldn't ask for one of them? iPod, iPhone, whatever. They're asking for something. First they ask, don't they? Then they plead and possibly seek to persuade. And if she receives the action man figure, well, they respond appropriately with thanksgiving. So the church is to ask and to plead and to keep asking and then respond with thanksgiving as God graciously answers. What about who we should pray for? Well, look at the end of verse 1. It's actually pretty simple, isn't it? All people. All people. We don't not pray for anyone. That's the point. And that includes all those the law has, has done its work with who fall into that list of Paul's in chapter 1, 9 and 10. The unholy, irreligious, murderers, adulterers, those practicing homosexuality, just to name a few. We pray for all people, everyone. And 2 verse 3 tells us that praying for all sorts of people is pleasing to God. And let's just, as an aside, just for a moment, if God desires all people to be saved, that's in verse 4, then praying for this, for all people to be saved, this, we, this will be particularly pleasing to him because that's when our wills expressed in our prayers coincide with God's will. And God is pleased when that happens, when our will coincides with God's will. So now back to 2 verse 2. I told you you had to have your Bible open if you can. It's, it's good to have it up in front of you. 2 verse 2 Why does Paul specifically mention those in authority to pray for? Aren't they part of all people? And yes, I know politicians don't always act like real people, but they are real people. Well, clearly Paul thought some reinforcement was needed. 
And don't, don't forget our leaders, he says. Perhaps they, there were people in the church who saw little point in praying for Emperor Nero. And if we've got the dates about right, Emperor Nero was the, 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 uh, the emperor at the time in the Roman Empire. Uh, he was the one famously, who did a number of things to Christians, but he, he burnt Christians alive in his gardens so to light up the night sky. Uh, he doesn't deserve our prayers. I'm not praying for him. And maybe that, that's what was going on. So a little bit of reinforcement was needed. Or maybe it was just, well, it's a waste of time praying for the government leaders in Ephesus particularly. They were so wrapped up in the occult and temple worship. Why would I pray for them? They're gone. God can't save them. No, 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 no. God is the king of kings. Remember back to chapter 1, verse 17, where Paul first breaks into song, our first Disney moment of 1 Timothy? Um, God is the king eternal, immortal. The point is God is king, sovereign over all. Nothing or no one is out of his reach. There's no no-go areas when it comes to praying. Now, another reason for this reinforcement, I think, this mentioning of kings and those in authority, it seems that Paul's he's concerned about the church's reputation. So the false teachers in Ephesus, in their ungodliness and unholiness, had generated a bad reputation for the church in Ephesus. Hey, it won't be the first time false teachers have brought the church into disrepute. So 2 verse 2 is an instruction to pray really for our reputation. So for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. The apostle tells God's household to pray for civic leaders that they would govern in a way that enables the church to thrive in godliness and holiness. Do you see that? Let me give you a little illustration. This, this might help. So... This prayer, this prayer is like a, a gardener spreading a net over fruit trees in order to protect them from the birds and ensure growth and fruitfulness. That's what we do it for, right? Uh, so the church is to pray for its civic leaders to act in such a manner that the church can be protected from certain threats in order to bear fruit peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's the fruit. Just as a gardener's net, though, does not protect against every threat, so it doesn't protect against bad weather, that net, it doesn't protect against smaller little insects that climb through, Well, so praying for a stable government does not protect the church necessarily from the indwelling of sin in a, in a church or the, the gusts of false teaching. Nevertheless, it's a wise gardener who protects his crop and it's a wise church that acts on 2 verse 2 and prays for its national, state and local leaders. Now friends, some politicians may not believe in prayer. Uh, they may not believe in the, in the God that we pray to. But they appreciate the prayers. Have you written to your local member and told them that you're praying for them? Um, you should do that. It's a good thing to do. I did that during the same-sex marriage debate. I uh, did it only recently. And I can't remember what I wrote, wrote for recently. It might come back to me in a moment. But I got a letter back, and she thanked me for the prayers. It shows our respect. It shows that we're subject to those authorities. And that's good for our reputation as Christians. 
So we're praying for all people, not forgetting those in authority, our politicians, for example, and we're praying for our own godliness and holiness, but specifically we're praying, look at verses 3 and 4, for all people to be saved. And this is good and pleases God our Saviour. See, this is a prayer that's grounded in the heart of God. God's love is the basis for all prayer. Our prayers in sync with his will. Prayer that asks for people to come to a knowledge of the truth is good and pleases God our Saviour. But if God wants all people to be saved, and if he's the sovereign king eternal, well that means surely God must get what he wants, right? So it must mean that all people will be saved. Isn't that what it means? That, that, that's a logical step, I guess we could say, and, and some people do jump to that logical step. Uh, theologians often call, call it universalism. But there's a few problems with this, isn't there? Well, one is just in 1 Timothy alone, we read clearly that, people, that all people are not saved. I don't have to look at it now, but there's a place of judgment where people are, are plunged into ruin and destruction. So to 5 verse 24, if you're writing some notes down, or, or 6, 9 and 10, you can look at those later on. Clearly that's mentioned. So not, well, in 1 Timothy, not all people are saved. It's also quite plausible that the all people here in, um, uh, in verse 4 means all types of people. In fact, it makes complete sense really in the, in the context Jew and Gentile, uh, ruler or just bog-standard citizen. God welcomes all types of people into his kingdom. It's not some snooty Qantas club. All people, all types of people. And also we need to recognise that there's a difference between desire and decree or will. So God may well desire all to be saved, but he knows that some will not. He knows in chapter 4, verse 1, that some will abandon the faith. In the end, God wants his household at Ephesus, just as he wants his household at Robertson, to have a clear vision of the love of God, our Saviour, the, the glorious gospel, what he calls the knowledge of the truth. All sinners are welcome through Christ, whatever their sin. That's why Jesus came. Remember from 1 verse 15, he came into the world to save sinners. Paul's that prototype, an example of God's unlimited patience. If he can save Paul, he can save anyone. And an encouragement to any sinners who, want, who would wish to receive eternal life. Anyone can come. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, the message is that God is a loving saviour. Now, Paul now goes on now in the next couple of verses to explain this truth that people need to know. The truth that gives us the assurance that God's love does extend to all. And it centres on his son's death. Have a look at verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Christ is our mediator. Jesus is our mediator. John 14, 6, he's the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father 
except through him. He's the only way to God. There's a great chasm, you see, between us and God caused by our sin and that can only be bridged by the man, Jesus Christ. He is the perfect mediator, God's son, a man. Imagine for a moment an island connected to a mainland by only one bridge. There's no other way. No, you, can't, you can't land a helicopter. You can't do that way. That won't work. The coastline is too rough for boats. That won't work. There's no way you could swim it. Even Kirley couldn't swim it. Um, she's not here to hear that, unfortunately. Uh, she's with the kids. The bridge is the only route available to reach the destination. That's it. The only way. In the same way we can only approach God, our Saviour, through the person of Jesus Christ. Not through the priest. Not through religious works. Or superior knowledge of the law. Only through God's Son, Jesus Christ. And so what is it that Christ did which enables us to have access to the living God? Well, Christ is our ransom. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. 1 verse 15. His death was the ransom payment given on behalf of all people. His death death delivers us from sin and its consequences. The price for sin has been paid. In Christ voluntarily dying for us. It's what theologians call call, uh, substitutionary atonement. He died as our substitute, atonement at one with God. That's what it makes us, substitutionary atonement. I'm going to give you a little illustration of that. If you've been in this church for a while, you've seen this before. I'm probably going to do it a number of times again in the future. I chose the biggest book in my bookshelf to illustrate this. I'll go and get it. It's pretty heavy. So I'll get to that in a moment. So you might remember this, but I'll tell you this because... When you share the gospel with your friends, I want you to use it. It's really simple and easy. And it demonstrates Christ being our ransom. Or I wouldn't use the word substitutionary atonement when you first share the gospel with a friend. But you never know, it might come up. Um, So my left hand here is us. And let's just say the ceiling's God, right? So there's us. Problem is that we sin and that affects our relationship with God. That's that chasm we talked about before. And so I chose the biggest book in my bookshelf, which is the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology, a good read when you want to go to sleep. Um, And uh, this represents all my sin. Probably not really big enough, to be totally honest, but it will have to do. All my sin, there it is. And what it does, it stops us, stops me from relating to God, my sin. I can't. there's There's a... I can't relate to God. That sin is in the way. Here's Jesus, right? Jesus is my right hand. And you can see that Jesus has no sin on him. He has direct, perfect relationship with God. And so what happened on the cross is that Jesus took our sin on himself. There it goes. And Jesus dealt with that sin. And you see my left hand, that's us. That sin is now gone. He died in our place, taking that sin for us. He was our ransom, the price paid for our sin. That transfer of sin... Over unto him. Three days later, he rose from the grave, and that sin was dealt with completely. It's easy, isn't it? The gospel's good news. You can do that with your friends as well. Christ is our ransom, he's our mediator. Okay, let's take a step back now 
and remind ourselves what Paul's doing. So in contrast to the narrowness of the sorry we're fool attitude of these false teachers who say, God, I have some special knowledge, special obedience to be righteous with God, Paul says, no, 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 no. Paul reminds Timothy, Paul reminds the church, reminds us, God reminds us of the breadth of salvation. Anyone can come to Jesus. All kinds of people, no matter what you've done. The kingdom of God is for everyone. And that's Paul's purpose in his preaching. We're not going to spend much time in verse 7. And Lord, be ours too, not just in our preaching, but our speaking. That, that purpose to share that knowledge of the truth, he calls it, of the gospel. Paul is not just an example or prototype of salvation, but also an example of, of the sort of ministry which must flow from a true understanding of the person and work of Christ. So let's, let's tie a few things together then. Um, Paul's building up this vision of the, uh, of the gospel being proclaimed to all peoples. This is the calling of the church and, and especially its leadership, but oh, the church. Where does it all start? That starts in prayer, doesn't it? That's where it all starts. Actually, it continues in prayer and finishes in prayer, but we'll get to that another day. It starts there, praying for all sorts of people to come to faith and be saved. Last week you received, and we can get a few more of these if you missed out on one, you received a little, it's not that fancy, but it does the job, it's a little bookmark, uh, Jesus is for us, Luke 19.10 written there, a little bookmark to remind us to pray. So mine just sits in my Bible there, um, and uh, along, along, I didn't actually bring it out with me, but usually it's in there, is my little um, uh, Robbo Daily Life little booklet, which helps me, reminds me to pray for the church, and, and uh, uh, there's a group of people who are on each week. Uh, if you haven't got one of them, make sure you get one. So this little bookmark here, and on the back it says, insert group members' names followed by the people they, uh, they want you to pray will discover that Jesus is for them. So what you can put down there is name of a friend you want to pray for, uh, a workmate, family member. You could even put a name of a politician down there as well. That will be a good thing to do. That's where we want to start. Now why, why do that? Why is this prayer not a forlorn hope? Well, we've seen it today because God wants all people to be praised, uh, all, all people to be saved. Uh, that's why we pray, because that's God's will. And praying in line with God's will pleases God. Such prayer is not hopeless because it's based on God's desire for all people. And this, in turn, is based on the work and person of Jesus. He's our mediator. He's our ransom. And this is the message that must be preached to all nations. In faith, trusting that God will hear the prayers of his people as his truth is proclaimed. That's our job, isn't it, there? Our job is prayer and proclamation. God will do the rest. The power, you see, is in the message. It's not in the messenger. It's in the message. So we pray and we proclaim and God will do the rest. So Paul has steered the ship away from the rocks of false teaching into the deep waters of God's love and Christ's death and into the wide expanse of the gospel invitation to all kinds of people. How about I pray? Lord God, we thank you for the good news that we were once again reminded of today. We ask that we as your people would respond in trust, 
knowing indeed that, um, Lord, you want all people to be saved. Lord, we pray now for uh, maybe there are people in this room who need to come to the Lord Jesus for the first time. We pray now today is a day they'll do that and put their trust in you, Lord Jesus, as their mediator who paid that ransom price. Lord, we think of people in our lives who, who don't know you. It might be family members, workmates. Perhaps right now we're just thinking of individual people. We pray for them. We pray that you give us opportunities to share the good news about Jesus with them. Lord, we thank you that we can pray, knowing that we trust in your work, that you are sovereign King, Lord of all, and that you've got things in control. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.